Welcome friends, it's time for another tokenomics and what a treat I have for you today. Uh, today I am joined by Simon Davis, the CEO and co-founder of Mighty Bear Games. And Simon has a, a wonderful history in game development with a lot of overlap between me and there's just so much uh, uh, exciting uh, for us to talk about today. Any Wonder is a well-funded, stealth-mode startup looking for a lead game engineer to help build wonderful Web3 worlds. Client, server, or full stack, it doesn't matter. So long as you're an experienced game dev who loves getting dirt under their fingernails, then you could be a match for us. If you're excited about joining a fully remote startup on the ground floor and making a massive impact on the future of the games industry, then reach out at anywonder.xyz join. That's anywonder.xyz slash join, and let us know why you're ready for something wonderful. Uh, so I'm really glad to have you. Welcome to the podcast, Simon. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's good to finally be on here. Yeah. Um, so I was looking at your LinkedIn uh, as I was doing my research for this. I mean, I'm not amazed that we've never met since you've been living in Singapore so long, but the similarities in our careers were pretty amazing. And, and I used to actually study some of the games you worked on for research um, back when I was at EA. Um, so could you just start by giving a brief introduction to you and your uh, uh, very successful career in free-to-play game development? Sure. Thanks for that very, very kind intro. So... For me, like I, I had a what you'd call, I suppose, a non-traditional path into gaming. I think, like a lot of people, I ended up in the games industry by accident. So, I am a music major, and I was, you know, teaching guitar and playing in bands in Brighton, which is a very artsy city in the south of England. Um, but it's also a video game hub. And so, one summer, basically, uh, all my guitar students disappeared, and I had no work. <laughs> And so I got a job. During, what like, what like, happened? Did did they all go to oh, Fatboy Slim's Brighton Beach party or something? I they was just actually, disappeared. I, I was I was at that party in uh, God, it was like 2001, 2002, maybe. Yeah, I was there. Uh, no, it was because it's uh, as you may be aware, like Europe just goes mad for vacations in July, August. And so I had this stretch. Yeah, why do you think? Why away. do you think I've been doing this podcast alone for like four months? Anton's oh, summer yeah, vacation. The Finns are all hiding in their cabins, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so it was basically that, man. Like like you, I was just on my own, and there wasn't a lot of work. And so uh, I'm lucky enough that I come from a bilingual family, and I basically applied for a job doing localization, translating games from English to Spanish. I ended up working on the PlayStation 2 and Nokia Engage, doing QA primarily. And so I was, I'm in the credits with pretty much every Engage game that, that ever came out. Which wow. Is, I don't know if that's a source of shame or a source of pride. I, haven't quite I think that's that a source of pride. I, yeah. uh, Engage is one of the few consoles I don't have in this tiny room in my, in my bookshelf over there. Wow. That bookshelf's got a lot of stuff, but uh, don't have an Engage yet. You'll you manage, don't worry. Like, you're, you're <laughs> but if uh, I don't play Splinter Cell on, on the Engage... How will yeah. I be a master game designer? That's how my brain that's, thinks. That's true. Yeah. I think that's that's the one deconstruction you're really missing from your repertoire. Um, Absolutely. But to be fair, like there was one good game on the platform, uh, Pathway to Glory. Anyway, I digress. So I, um, yeah, I did QA for a few years, like a couple of years, and then I managed to basically blag my way into a production job. 
And after working as a producer at a bunch of different places, um, the 2008 financial crisis happened. But the company I was working for went bankrupt. Basically, most of their stock was held by a massive supermarket chain that basically went under. Uh, and so we were like, shit. I, Why? That's yeah. so bizarre. It would it's be like so if random. EA yeah. was owned yeah. by Kirkland here in the United States. Like, that's but just crazy. Imagine that EA had all their stock held by, it was Woolworths. Woolworths went down and all yeah. their stock was being held by Woolworths. And it's like, shit, I need a job. Uh, so basically, like, <laughs> no one was hiring in console, right? Console and Primo at that yeah. time in the UK. And I was, like, quite snobby about web and free-to-play at the time. So, you know, like, a lot of premium like producers that's not real games and so i took yeah. this job in germany at big point thinking that i was going to show them how to make real games and like uh, mm-hmm. you know like you know all you need is to make good games and you'll make money with free to play which is obviously like idiotic but you actually yeah. have to go and do it and so i was lucky enough that i landed at big point that at the time was i suppose like along with wuga like the biggest like free to play uh browser developer in Europe at the time and like we were making um, did, Mad Bank. Did yeah. Big Point do um Travian? No, uh, no. Travian was, was huge. Someone else. Yeah, yeah. Travian made was... so much fucking money. <laughs> yeah. No, Big Point did Dark Orbit, Sea Fight. They had a game called Farmerama, which was basically mm-hmm. like Farmville, I guess, which yeah. did huge money. There was some also like there were some very interesting decisions there. So they were, had a game that was uh Pony Rama is like a pony farming game, but the the team they assigned to work on it previously worked on a game called the Pimps, and the Pimps is exactly what you think it was, and so that was perhaps not that, the, that the would get you cancelled today. That is yeah, not so, appropriate. So the, I remember the tutorial like there was a bit where you had to like pull a horse along to tame them, and they were like crying. It was just it was hysterical. But anyway, Big Point did did really well, and it was a great place to learn free to play. Um, I worked on a game called Sea Fight, which was a a browser based pirate MMO that I think is still running. Um, yeah. an, another project which was in development, and then eventually I became the product lead on Dark Orbit, which at that time was Big Point's biggest game and probably like the biggest browser MMO in Europe at that time. And yeah, so Dark Dark Orbit was huge, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Tell, t- I mean, so t- you're gone. I, I need to pause here because I mean, like again, the parallels on um, I got into free to play during the financial crisis. I mean, to for all the people, I know there are a lot of layoffs in the technology industry and the game industry in general, and I had a very similar experience to you of like there were I I want to say hundreds to a couple thousand, you know, like low thousand layoffs at EA at, at that time. And the way that I managed my career was I found the growth area, right? Which was free to play browser games and then turned into Facebook games. And by being part of the new investment, as opposed to the legacy thing where cost trimming needed to happen, I had a much more, um, I had security at EA at a time when there was just a lot of uncertainty. And so, you know, basically what I'm trying to say is if you're, uh, if you're uh, feeling some insecurity uh, in your job right now, you might want to find a, a well-funded uh, Web3 developer, like, say, a Mighty Bear Games that raised $10 million or a stealth mode startup that, that's got a flush bank account. You know, you might like, you might want to find one of these places 
uh, because maybe they have enough money to weather the storm if they're well managed. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> I, I completely concur. But no, I think for me, like that was probably it was. Uh, I'll be honest, like it wasn't a foresight on my part. It was more necessity. Uh, but it was actually like yeah. a really important moment in my career. It basically, made my career. Um, yeah. And so I was, you know, by the time free to play was a lot more accepted in like 2012, 2013, I was much more established. And so, you know, I got a job at, at Blue Byte in Germany, uh, which is a Ubisoft studio. And I was basically asked to come to Singapore on a mission to help them ship Ghost Recon online because there were very, I don't think there was really anyone on the team that shipped a free to play game before. Like a right. successful free and run a games as a service. And they're like, look, we have, I think it was like something like 200 people at the time working on this incredibly expensive PC free-to-play game. Can you come over and help us ship it? And so I landed in Singapore uh, for what was meant to be a three-month mission. And I was just like, you can't make me move back to Dusseldorf. Like, no, no way. Uh, I refuse. And so I've been in Singapore ever since. Uh, it's been 10 years now. And, you know, after Ubisoft, I joined uh, the guys at Nonstop Games. You, you may know Henrik or Harry, because, oh, sorry, Henrik, who's at Nonstop, who went on to found Play Ventures, which I know yep. you guys are quite close to it. And so I was yeah. lucky enough to work with them, with him for a number of years and kind of learn from him. But actually, I'd met him while I was at, at Big Point when he was at Wooger. Like, I interviewed at Wooger as well and ended up joining Ubisoft instead. But it's funny how these people you meet in interviews, you then connect with years later and, like, you know, play an important yeah. part in your life. So, again, like, yeah, it's, be nice to people. Again, Don't be a dick. Exactly. I was going to say to pause there. Um, now that I'm 20 years in, it's amazing how many people I run into over and over and how people's different careers change and move and, and positions of power and positions of uh, needing help. And like there are people I was definitely rude to in my past that I regret. <laughs> and like now, yeah. I've, now I've learned the lesson and I'm like, oh, like I should be a much kinder human being because one, that's the way to live, but I have no idea where anybody's going to end up, right? Someone that I have a bad day uh, and I snap at in, in the cafeteria who's an intern might be the CEO of the hottest tech startup in 10 years, and I have no way of predicting oh, this. So even even if you're not actually a good human, uh, which you should be just for its own sake, like it, it really pays dividends just to be kind to everybody. I agree. Like it's, I've always, I've generally made it my policy to not make enemies in this business because, like you say, you never know when you see people again. And I think having that very positive relationship with with Henrik early on ended up with me working at Nonstop. Um, Nonstop was a King studio, right? And when King was acquired by Activision Blizzard, like Nonstop stopped basically, and so we were invited to relocate back. Bad to branding. Yeah, it's not a great. It's a very it's tempting fate for a game studio to be called that. In hindsight, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna call my game studio Indestructible Game Company. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> um, and so yeah, look, when the studio stopped, like there was fifty, you know, world class talents all available at the same time in Singapore, and so it was just a no brainer. Like so, we took the best eight nine people that we could find at that time and started Mighty Bear. Um, that was in 2016. But, uh, yeah. I gotta again. I gotta pause there because, like, what amazing! I as a as a co found as like a founder, literally incubating a company right now. I can't tell you how jealous I am to have that experience of having being able to found a company with ten people you've worked with and trust that have mutual patterns of working, communication, experience, like 
what a gift, man. Like that's, I mean, it's, it's going to take me two years to get to that point of, uh, if I'm lucky, that's amazing. No, it was like, I'm, you know, like, obviously it's a very stressful period for a lot of people when they lose their jobs, but for me personally, and, and the people are, are mighty bear, like it was a, it was a, a quite fortuitous moment because everyone, you know, that people were like financially well looked after King treats people very well. And so there wasn't any like urgent money concerns and people were available and we could get building. And yeah, like I had tried to start the studio years before and I, I mean, you know, this, like I couldn't convince people to leave comfortable jobs. I remember one yeah. guy telling me like, I cannot live on less than $12,000 a month. I was like, dude, you're a single man. Like, what do you do? With <laughs> you definitely can. <laughs> you choose yeah. not to. He has a very <laughs> indulgent lifestyle, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's... Um, people don't like uh, to make changes in their lives. The, the momentum of one's life is a very hard uh, force to escape, I've, I've found. Yeah, but like... But, I mean, this is a digression, but the worst thing that can happen to you if you start a non-successful studio, right, realistically, uh, for most people, I guess there's going to be exceptions for most people, is that you go back to getting another corporate job. So you're no yeah. worse off than you were before. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully that's inspired uh, someone to take the plunge. But yeah. yeah. Like, uh, as, as long as you ship product or like, I mean, as long as you grow and learn, uh, uh, that's really w what's important. I think it's... Um, you know, the the world is not the world where my father had two jobs, one for 20 years and one for 40 yeah. years. Like, that's just not, that's not our modern technology career landscape. And, and I actually find that, it, I mean, taking the risks and growing and learning is just, it's exciting. It makes your life more rich and full in, in my experience. Um, I want to go back to Dark Orbit. Uh, sure. uh, can you describe the gameplay of Dark Orbit and the monetization and like compare? I mean, this was what, 2008, maybe? Like, I think Dark Orbit came out, yeah, about 2008, yeah. It's be not a because game. The, the reason I want to talk about it is because so much of what is successful in free to play mobile currently was being done at scale. Uh, with huge revenues on the browser uh, back back then and it was like this this secret that that in EA and, and other companies we couldn't even convince people that it was uh, an opportunity worth chasing i think the thing with games like that and, and a lot of maybe a lot of web3 games today right is they don't fit people's preconceptions of what a game should be like the game yeah. was browser based it was a flash game like a lot of the uh, I wouldn't really say it was skill-based. Like, you know, the the spaceship would follow wherever you clicked on, like, a path. It was essentially like a, a 2D, like, reinterpretation of something like EVE Online, but just much more simple. Like, with, yeah. you know, with, like, the, different the skill... server shards and leaderboards. It, the skill was more in, like, the meta, right? And how you get In the meta shit. game, not, yeah. not in the uh, Twitch game. That's right, right yeah. And, which actually... Uh, makes a lot of sense for the German personalities that I've met um, in my time in the game industry. Like, you know, not not everybody wants to play uh, Fortnite or Tekken or, you know, something I have a Twitch funny based. story about that. So, like, when I was a big, but this tells you how long ago this was. Like, my mm -hmm. extension rang 
And so I pick up the phone and it's like my manager and he's like, I need you to come to my office. One of the communities here. And I was like, dude, like, I'm busy. I don't really have time to sit down with a random player. And he's like, no, you, you must come. And I went down and, and this was really like a typical dark orbit whale. So there's a guy who, uh, you know, to be discreet, I'll say was in the um, uh, hospitality business and had spent 40,000 euros in dark orbit and was a very well put together, very smartly dressed man who just liked to be the most powerful person in his guild and then just buy stuff mm -hmm. for all his other guild mates. And the yeah. average player, like you say, because it man. wasn't really Twitch based. Yeah, it was like an older dude who just wanted social status. And like some people very yeah. unkindly were like, oh, it's just a, a chat window with a shop. I mean, there was more to it than that. But there was a lot of depth actually in the meta. But yeah, it was a lot of like, slightly awkward by like, older guys with a lot of money that wanted to like map out and like super min max and i guess maybe something similar today could be like the the world of tanks audience maybe mm -hmm. i mean that that sounds like uh, a lot of guild leaders i know i mean being the the term that i used big man is is not uh i'm not talking making any assumptions about this guy's size i i, I uh, listened to this book guns germs and steel yeah. It's an anthropology book that talks about different uh, similarities among tribal, you know, like our tribal roots, shared tribal roots, and how different environmental factors um, impact different societies' evolutions. And like, it's you know, it was difficult. It was a challenging listen, uh, but really educational. And like, this is a repeated phenomenon that's kind of part of our DNA. Is like, it's common for somebody to seek the status of being the big man or big woman, like being the leader, having influence, being looked up to, having power, being generous. Like it's just part of being human. And so it doesn't, you know, 15 years ago, this whale spent 40,000 euro. And yeah. today they're the equivalent spending 2 million euro uh, in yeah, yeah. game of war or similar guild-based games, you know? Well, especially it's if you the, same, the, this... the Chinese MMOs on mobile today, you know, like Rise mm -hmm. of Civilization, basically use the same monetization we were using like 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And and a lot of those games, uh, you know, they're the um, because when the costs get low to maintain it, they're so sticky and that I know that there are browser games that have been operating for like 22 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's right. And ensure they're not undergoing the same sort of live development that um, you and I are used to. But like, you know, that is a long lived uh, community and experience. Um, all right. I, so um, b before we get to Mighty Bear, I just want to touch a little bit more on that transition of of being having that proven free to play success with Dark Orbit. And then being kind of the alien, uh, the the unfamiliar outsider going into a giant 200-person team trying to teach, you know, evangelize for free-to-play monetization and design and methodology. What was yeah. what was that like? Because I, I, I can imagine and uh, I might get some PTSD in yeah. this uh, conversation. I mean, look, it wasn't easy. Um, I think most developers and especially you know designers uh, fairly idealistic people with strong principles and and that's a good thing right and that means that people you know behave a certain way and, and have strong strong ideas and 
whatever else. But I think the challenge I had coming in, and this may not come as a shock to you, is that the team was like, you know, if I'm being polite, was largely allergic to monetization. And yeah. So you have a situation where a game needs to make money and everyone's like, oh, look at League of Legends, they only monetize skins. It's like, that's fine if you have a massive volume business like Fortnite or League. But most games don't have those numbers, so you have to find other ways to monetize people. And so I've always thought of um, pay to win, and this is an unpopular opinion, but as like a scale. When at one day the scale, maybe you have something that's more like Game of War, on the other end you may have something like Fortnite, where it's purely cosmetic. And I've always said that you have to choose where you're going to position yourself along that scale. And generally it's better to be more on the, you know, the fair side. Um, but even that debate within you know, a company that's traditionally been very sensitive to consumer sentiment and is is very uh, community focused and is, comes from a premium and console background was a very tough discussion. Like we did, I think we did eventually get there, but it was like, it was not easy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I only, I only dream that one day my, uh, my fledgling startup will be acquired by Activision Blizzard so that I can relive this exact uh, <laughs> exact experience but with crypto games and try and you know I just can't wait to be told I'm a cancer on the game industry and I'm ruining video games again by my fans and peers yeah. uh, by my players and peers <laughs> I got told that when I was on Dark Orbit because we released a thousand euro spaceship as a joke and it sold two thousand units in the first four days it was like a story on Gamma Sutra everyone went mad yeah. but it was uh, yeah I mean that's just you gotta and, have a thick skin to do this. And and now with Star Atlas, how low priced was that thousand dollar spaceship? You didn't even get close yeah. to people's yeah. actual appetite to spend money on virtual spaceships, right? Uh, people, people thought you were, were being a vulture, yeah. and and there are humans out there who will happily spend hundreds of thousands of dollars or euros on virtual ships. It's amazing. But honestly, we, we did it as a joke. We didn't think that anyone would actually spend a thousand euros. Like, and all of a sudden, like, it became this massive flex. Like, but uh, yeah, it turns out that people oh spend a lot of money to flex. I guess NFTs have proved that since then. But yeah, in like two thousand and ten, yeah. like no one, no one saw that. That's nuts. Oh my god. Um, what? Um, what? If let's say there's a young a designer out there and she's at a startup that is shifting to crypto and she believes in it and they don't, what sort of advice would you have for her in, in that instance about how to um, have these conversations around monetization and, and contested business models with, with peers? I think, and you know, I'm not going to give people advice on how to argue, but I think a lot of the, like, and we had this internally at Mighty Bear, like we had to do quite a lot of educating and, and evangelizing and explaining. I think a lot of it really involves getting people to open up and listening to their concerns and talking through them. So like, you know, one guy was talking about environmental concerns that, so, well, you realize that, you know, we're building on Polygon. Polygon is actually going carbon, is already carbon neutral, is going carbon negative. And yet, like, you're not worried about cloud gaming, which by the way, is that like much more energy intensive. And so like for a lot of these, a lot of these like uh, issues that people have can actually be discussed and explained away. And you can talk about how you're tackling it in a different way or a more thoughtful way or outline your approach. And so I think if you have reasonable people, you can share a vision, which is compelling and exciting. I, the way we see, you know, Web3 and, and 
NFTs is really about just an extension of what we've been doing in free to play, but now with the players owning the assets and having a stake in the in-game economy. And like, I can't see how that's a bad thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, the thing that I say over and over again is that I believe that player ownership aligns the incentives of the developer and the player in a way that will force us, the game developer, to make better choices for our, that are more in our players' best interests and more in the interest of long-term retention over short-term monetization. And that's why I'm so excited about um, Web3 Gaming. Like, I think that we will both be fairer, kinder, better to our players and more profitable as, as businesses because of the um, digital ownership. Um, all right. Um, tell me, you, you told me about kind of the, the founding moment of Mighty Bear. Let's talk a little bit about the history of Mighty Bear and some of the, uh, uh games that you've worked on and shipped already. Cause this isn't, you're not a new startup that, that jumped on the hot web three bandwagon. You guys have been making games for, for some time. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So Funny enough, going back to Dark Orbit, like when we founded Mighty Bear, I was like, hey, I know how to make an MMO, an accessible MMO. And like, I, I had this crazy theory that with nine people, we could build a, an MMORPG in like a year. And so I had hair when I started Mighty Bear. And basically that first game <laughs> took care of it, right? Uh, the World of Legends did, did for my hair. And so we shifted MMORPG oh. in 18 months. Um, honestly, like the review scores were pretty good. We had decent spend per user. But the challenge we had really was scaling the game and creating content fast enough, which in hindsight mm -hmm. should have been obvious. Um, uh, but the thing that panned out well from that was that Apple and Google both featured it globally and they both really liked it. And so, you know, when Apple Arcade was coming around, we were, uh, I, I need to think about how I phrase this, but we were, you know, in part of the conversation, I suppose. And so the opportunity came to build Battle Royale. And so we had released world legends we were had a second game in test which was like an mmo puzzle rpg that was you know pretty cute uh mighty pets and puzzles and like had some early interesting numbers but we realized the opportunity on arcade at that time was was interesting um and could actually like help propel the studio to a to a different level of um visibility and like prominence and could be a good platform for us especially early on and so butter reality was was fantastic for us i can't really speak highly enough of those early days uh, on arcade and then yeah i, Disney, I again to, to pause there as a developer um i mean i was i was more of like a, a helping hand in tetris beat uh, mm. my friend lawrence who's uh i forget where exactly in in the uk he's from but you guys are have very similar uh, uh, speech speech patterns and mannerisms, okay. so probably pretty close. I just Lawrence, I apologize. I'm going to forget which which city you're from, but um, he led that project with some great development partners at Amber, and we had a fantastic time um, yeah. working in the Apple Arcade business model. I think as a developer, the deal terms for us allowed us to make a game we wanted to make. Um, we're really excited about work with high quality musicians, make a great game and be do something we were proud of and that wasn't in the high monetization business model that we're used to with with free to play. It was it was really refreshing to work on. So I I I mean I think what's going on with uh Apple Arcade and Netflix and other subscription um 
uh, offerings can offer some great things to to developers in terms of a structure yeah. um, to make games in. I mean, it's a great source of like non-dilutive funding and it allows you to invest in the studio and build up your tech stack and develop in a, in a way which is actually pretty safe. It's not like you're spending yeah. millions on new UA. Um, but yeah, off the back of that, like, it, that made it possible for us to work on Disney Melee Mania and, you know, conceptualize that game with Disney. And that was fantastic experience. We shipped a, a, a MOBA with, I think, 16 different Disney Pixar IPs at launch. It was built in 11 months. Butterware was built in six. Like, we're a studio that shipped, I think, uh, four, th- five, four games in the last four years. It's pretty nuts. Uh, yeah, five games in the last four years, yeah. And and uh, last year we were testing, actually, a merge game as well. But, you know, I, I'm not the first person to talk about this, but, you know, the changes that have happened in the ad landscape over the last 18 months just make it very difficult for studios that don't have multi-million dollar UA budgets to really succeed in that space. And so that combined with being in Southeast Asia, right, and seeing what was happening with Axie on our doorstep and, and other games made us realize that, Actually, there was a huge opportunity here. I think it also helped that I've been in crypto since 2015 or 2014, and so had one of the first, two of the first employees at Mighty Bear. They were also Crypto Kitties players back in the day, and so we had looked at making what was then called a blockchain game in 2017, but we couldn't really find a model that that we felt was really appealing. And so, like last year was really a great time because the studio developed this expertise in arena-based like battle royale type experiences and making them accessible and really fun with with battle royale and disney melee mania and then we'd actually figured out like a a design that really made sense as well on the tokenomics and blockchain side and nft side so it was a combination of factors yeah i want to um go back for a moment to the comment you made um about losing your hair during the development of that game um because I, um, this, I think because the, the crunch story that came up from striking distance game in the past week or two, I've been thinking a lot about, um, the crunch that I put myself through, put, you know, times I've put my teams through the, um, valorization of crunch culture when I was reading about the game industry and how, like, I internalized that narrative And I mean, I've had, um, from when I was 20 health complications, uh, from repetitive stress injury in both arms, herniating discs in my back multiple times, um, dealing with the overhang of being prescribed opiate painkillers at 20 to deal with the pain from these things, the anxiety, the anxiety caused by getting, like, I've put myself through the ringer. These are choices I made. I mean, not the, the opiates. That was uh, no. a really negligent doctoring. But like, I I made choices because I bought into a crunch narrative and didn't pay enough attention to my body and my health and what I needed. And I've, I've made a lot of bad choices. And I've been dealing with the physical consequences of that for, for 20 years. I mean, no, no joke. Um, And I, you know, have similar, like, pictures of, like, start of Dragon Age Legends versus what it looks like now up here. Like, that's, I mean, the the stress of these things, um, the human toll it can take on individuals and on teams, 
Um, it's something I hope to do better on in the future, which is prioritize health and well-being and sustainability, because I haven't done a good job of, of managing my own life and balancing things out. Um, so I'm curious if, you know, like it's it's kind of a funny joke, but um, if that experience on the first Mighty Bear game has has caused you and the studio to make different choices about how you manage game production and process I mean, and which yeah, is really what, hard on live games incredibly hard i want to say when you have like a lot of the culture we have defined is basically down to ptsd and down to trauma yeah. from previous companies so like when yeah. we founded the company the first thing we did was write a principles document which is actually on our website or linked to that and like i'll give you an example like we have untracked leave for a very simple reason which is like when my father died many years ago i was working i won't name the company a fairly big company and i had to take quite extended leave because his um financial affairs were not straightforward to resolve and so i was off work yeah. for like five to six weeks and so i ended up having to take unpaid leave while i was like burying my dad and taking care of that and i was like i never want to put anyone through that ever again <laughs> And so this is why we have like people like go oh, on track leave like so people take less holiday. It's like no, so you don't actually have to fucking worry about this stuff. So I actually make sure people yeah. take enough leave, and we close the studio for two three weeks a year anyway, and then we make people go away. But that's so I think a lot of that comes down to that. And when I think back to the crunch, like I think the like you, I romanticized that idea of crunch as just something you had to do to ship. Uh, when I was younger, and I think when you're a dude in your 20s and 30s, like I'm 39 now, but maybe early 30s, like there is a tendency to romanticize that stuff and just be like, mm -hmm. come on, you're just soft and, like, you know, really try and push people. Um, but I, I look at it very differently today because like you, it took a human toll on me. Like I gained like 40 pounds since I founded the company, which I'm now gradually working off, but it takes a lot longer to lose it just to well, gain it. Man. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're literally the same person. I'm, as of this morning, halfway through trying to lose 40 pounds. Yeah, I'm, like, not, I'm almost hungry. It is, yeah. it, is, hard, man. it is a job. It is another job to actually take care of your physical self um, and your family. Um, Jesus, that story about your dad is heartbreaking. Tell me about it's just part I, of the industry, man. It's just something that happens. Like, yeah. I mean, we're we're the same age, and my father is still alive, but it's his 80th birthday in two weeks, and this is, I I can imagine this exact thing happening to me, and the idea that um, someone would have to choose, like a, a lot of people, regardless of their salary, a lot of people mm. in the world. Uh, I mean, one, if you're a global citizen, you're lucky to have a salary. Most people do not. Yeah. If you do have a salary, most people, regardless of how high or low that is, are living paycheck to paycheck and not growing their wealth over time. And so the idea that you would have to take unpaid leave, be worried about being fired, hurting your yeah. career, uh, losing your rent or not making your mortgage or not be because you had to go take care of your father's life because you had to take care of real life. Like that's at a time you're grieving. Um, oh, Jesus Christ. Can you tell me, tell me the yeah, principles sure. of mighty bear? I would love to know them. I mean, we have a document mapped out, but largely it's about empathy. It's about transparency. So someone's dropping something from the floor above. Uh, treating just generally treating people the right way and being a decent human being and we also have a very flat hierarchy where we encourage people to challenge one another and be vocal 
Um, and that's something that's not easy to always inculcate, especially amongst more junior staff. It's also culturally specific. Yeah. So I think in the US, it's probably a bit easier than in Singapore, for example. But we have a lot of things around how we treat people, basically all based on our previous working lives, because many of us have worked at different big studios down the years and really internalize these things. I'm not going to pretend that there aren't periods where we work extended hours either. Like, oh, absolutely. I mean, because I, nothing like I what love, I did in AAA. Yeah. I mean, I'm in video games because I love video games and the process of making them is so fulfilling. And so like, I often, you know, crunch is a choice I made because of the ambition that I had and because yeah. of how much joy I take in it. And um, so it's not somebody else's fault, right? Nobody at iWin forced me to spend two weeks spending, you know, 16 hours a day ranking every hidden object item on my scorecard by difficulty yeah. to find so that they could do, so that I could have the best possible level design in Jewel Quest Mysteries Curse of the Emerald Tear. Literally nobody cared. And the human experiences that I missed out on because I was doing that, like those, that was a choice I made myself because of a narrative of w what it takes to make great games. And just like, I, I'm haunted by that. I'll never get those years back. I'll never get that, that lost girlfriend and those times with my friends back, you know? Yeah. But yeah, you know, like, I think that if you think back to like, you're now starting your own company, right? This is, I think as a founder, it's okay because it's a choice you make. The part times mm -hmm. it's not okay is when it's forced on people. But like, like you say, like, I think a lot of people will do it purely out of ambition and like wanting to prove something. And that's, yeah, like, that's an individual choice. And look, I don't know if I hadn't, it sounds, this is terrible, what I'm about to say, but I think if I had made those sacrifices at that time, I would have had the opportunities that were later given to me because of how those organizations worked. And so I think it's incumbent on founders like us to really recognize yeah. people's contributions, even if they're not, you know, like just regardless of the hours they work. Right. And then, you know, live games, live games are 24 seven. Yeah. And, you know, with Discord and Twitter you know, fans can reach you. Uh, I, I, on, on Dragon Age, uh, not on Dragon Age, on, on Legendary, uh, I, it was not uncommon to be like literally, you know, stirring a, a pot of pasta sauce and get a Facebook Messenger post from um, a fan, a whale, uh, with some bug that they found. And it's like, this is years before Marianne, who's now at Mighty Bear, was, was at Network. And I was the designer and monetization person and kind of producer and I was doing social media and everybody on this small passionate team was was balancing out multiple jobs and so like not only am I like stirring pasta and like getting this bug but then I actually have to tell engineers and it's you know nine o'clock on a Thursday and all of a sudden they're fixing live issues like you need you know um Running a live game is very messy and having policies like uh, unlimited leave and being human and, and saying like, hey, uh, person X, person Y, I know that you just spent an all-nighter fixing live issues. Um, you need to take two days off. Like this isn't a choice. You need to rest because you're going to get sick. Like... It, it, 
there are thing there there are really unfortunate necessities, and then as leaders and and people who build company culture, there are things in an ideal world that that you can do to help ease ease the burden of, of people's lives. No, I agree. And there have been times where we've turned around to some people and said, "Hey, here's this much money. I want you to expense it on a, like a hotel, and you're not coming back for like the next week. You need to take a break." But you know, we try and avoid the situation where that's required, but it's not something that is something we've, we've done before to kind of acknowledge and, and recognize and make sure those people take the time off. Yeah. Um, all right. I, um, this is the, the tokenomics podcast. So let's talk yeah. about, uh, mighty action heroes. Um, uh, uh, tell me about the inception of the game and, and the gameplay and, and kind of where you are in development. Yeah, so the game, you know, came as a result of the genre expertise that we built up after shipping Battle Royale and Disney Melee Mania. We know that we can create very fun and compelling, you know, accessible arena-based games. And when we look at the Web3 space today, there aren't, you know, maybe there's only like one or two games that are really directly comparable. And this is an area that we think we can compete on and actually have a very serious presence. And so, look, logically, it made a lot of sense for us to tackle that. Also... We're a team that has a huge love of cinema, and so we really leaned into a very fun 80s and 90s action movie theme. Like today, we were watching Terminator 2 as a team, taking notes, and it's really weird watching That's that great. film with people that have never seen it before, who gasped at certain <laughs> sequences. Um, right. That really shocked me, because you know it's a film that I watched so much on VHS that we wore the tape out. Um, but yeah, so that was, that's, it's a really fun Yeah, you're probably film, showing but... it to people who've never watched yeah, yeah, a VHS yeah. before. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of these people born in the 2000s. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> 2000, 2001, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, so the theme is great. And then on the uh, on the development side, so we announced the fundraise in July. Uh, the game has been in development for a little while. And actually, we have a NFT sale coming up in a few weeks. Uh, they just got shifted because of the merge. And immediately after that, there's going to be an early access. And so players who hold the NFTs will be able to play the first playable of the game. We think it's, it's a Web3 thing, right? You want to build with the community. And mm-hmm. so we've decided to let players into the game as early as possible so that they could start giving us feedback on the gameplay, what they like, what they don't like. It's, uh, it's a dilemma we have as a team as well. It's like, how early do you show something? Like, what if it's unpolished? Mm-hmm. What if they get the wrong impression? What if it doesn't have the VFX? And so we've decided to lean into showing stuff earlier and really including the team, the, sorry, the community in the development process. Yeah. Um, tell me about, um, for the NFT sale, um, as, a, as a monetization, a really proven, experienced monetization person, what were the considerations around pricing, marketing um what you get what the utility of it is like i'm telling how did you make these decisions when and where did you land you know so i mean because that's the, just the, for for context like in in this industry there's and and there's everything from you know literal hundred thousand dollar spaceships to free mints and and everything in between and it's a wild west business model and no nobody has any proven answers so how did you get to your answers i think for us like we took a first principles perspective which was like okay what is the purpose of this first nft sale and so the nft sale is called big bear syndicate it's a series of action hero inspired bears 
um, you know, very cute PFPs. And the idea is that if you stake those PFPs, you then get loot boxes every, or you get, sorry, you get honey that you can spend to purchase loot boxes every X number of days. And then those loot boxes will be redeemable when the game once the game launches. And so the idea is that players will buy the PFPs and stake them. And over time, they'll get more and more assets in the ecosystem. And so we went back to first principles and thought, okay, so like, who do we want to get these PFPs in the hands of early on? Are they for speculators? Are they for people who want to you know, gamble on, on NFTs? Or is it more for the community? And so we landed actually that we want this to be the kind of seeding of the community early on and to make sure that we get the right people in, people that love the project and are committed. And so that really informed everything else we did going forward. So we haven't, I don't think we've announced the final mint price, but the idea is it's going to be very, very accessible. Like it's going to shock people how cheap it is. Um, I don't think it will be free for a very simple reason, which is we want to get people that really believe in the project and, and actually want to be a part of it. And I think if you make it free, you run the risk of it being dominated by bots and people that just want a quick flip. And yeah. so we want to get, we don't want, so the, the the thinking internally and the line we use is that we don't want the floor price of the NFTs to become the game. We want the game to be the game. And so you market with that in mind. So it means you partner up with guilds, you partner up with the right KOLs. And that's interesting because we've spoken to some NFT KOLs and the feedback they give us is completely correct if you were building an NFT collection that you wanted to moon as quickly as possible. But maybe that's detrimental to building a long-term kind of gaming community and ecosystem. And so we've realized that the, the feedback you get from people that are more into the gaming side and the feedback you get people from more into the NFT side is actually sometimes at, at odds with each other. So you have to decide, like, are you just trying to make money from the initial NFT mint and then you're going to cash out? Or are you trying to build something that people play for the next 10 years? And so that's how we was where we've landed. We want something that lasts 10 years, not 10 months. Yeah. That, um, that sounds like an approach to, uh, learn from, um, that, that sounds like the conversations I, I would be having if I were having them right now. Um, for people whose interest is peaked, um, do you know what the mint date is? Uh, how can they follow along? Should, you know, should I be in your discord right now? Should I be following yeah, on Twitter? You like, how do I get, how do I get, uh, whatever the John McClain bear pun you have is, um, uh, just follow us on, on play mighty hero on Twitter. And from there you can get to the discord as well. The discord is always the best place to get the breaking news as well. And so we'll be sharing ways that people can get early access, can get on, on the allow list as well. We're being quite deliberate about the allow list. We don't want it to be too much of a grind. So people that are like, you know, just a part of the community and a positive are, are likely to get early. Awesome. Um, looking, uh, oh, actually, let me ask, because you said you're, you delayed it because of the merge. I, I assume we're talking about the big uh, ETH eth merge so yeah, what right. what chain what chain did you choose for your game's development and, and what went into that uh, decision process yeah so we decided to build on polygon uh the primary consideration was that it's evm compatible so that gives us a lot of scope in terms of composability and being able to use you know other off-the-shelf tools like um wallets and, and different kind of modules that we could use as well like even you know potentially writing our own smart contracts you know there were like other other services available that were less open and so we ended up to go with polygon for that reason also because the fees are low right and it's accessible to people yeah. and you don't have to worry about gas going mad and when we made the decision it was like earlier this year and you know gas fees on ethereum were still crazy and so yeah because it's uh 
because it is uh, an EVM compatible chain and it obviously has that that link to Ethereum, like we were we were concerned about everyone's mindshare being taken up with the merge and all the noise that's happening. And it just didn't feel like a great time to be shipping a new product. Yeah. Um, you know, I the, the reason I uh, we started this podcast at all was really to learn in public and uh, people, some people, f- foolish people view me as an expert, even though I just keep saying like, there i'm here to tell you this hasn't been around long enough for anyone to be an expert yeah so i'm gonna i'm gonna prove how unexpert i am and ask a really basic question i well it's not basic for me other um because i know you guys from 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 our previous conversations you're a very tech um engineering smart experienced mmo experienced studio and that went into part of your decision so what I know EVM stands for Ethereum Virtual Machine. Why is it so important to be um, compatible? What is an Ethereum Virtual Machine? Why is it important? What possibilities does it open up for the future? Um, I mean, I should preface what I'm about to say by reinforcing that I have a music degree. So I may not be perhaps <laughs> the best person to give you right. like the, the super detailed answer, but look, it's a, yeah, it's no, a the high level, and and maybe yeah. I should follow up with a whole engineering episode about this at some point. Yeah, I mean, my understanding of EVM compatible, right, is that it's uh, I'm going to just repeat the words I just used, but like, you know, you can uh, essentially use other, you know, Ethereum compatible modules, and it has like a a unified. Uh, set of standards and code base you can use and so the tokens will work between different EVM compatible chains like your uh, NFTs or your your token like your currencies as well and that you'll be able to move them across and everyone's using the same kind of standard and the reason that was important for us was that in the future should we decide we want to add different things to the game or even build up you know our own ecosystem or whatever like we know that we have code and, and learnings that we can move across. It also means that you have readily available solutions off the shelf that you can plug and play because everyone who's building on an EVM compatible chain is basically building to the same set of standards. And so for us, like as a long-term play, it made a lot of sense. Now, having said that, we are, like you said, a very engineering heavy studio. Um, and for some studios that don't want to worry about that kind of thing and want to just focus on building a game, there are fantastic solutions out there as well that you can just kind of plug and play into. Awesome. Thank you for educating me. Uh, I really appreciate it. That's one of those things that I've been rattling around in my head um, and going like, oh, I have to read up on, on this. And I still do uh, some more. Um, all right. I'm going to close on this question uh, because I, I know that a, a lot of uh, – People in the audience are sort of looking for that alpha, looking for um, where the industry is going or like what the needs of developers are, where business opportunities are. Um, As a developer, a lot of venture investment goes to what they say is picks and shovels, right? That those are more dependable businesses, the, the tools that support the creatives like you and the rest of the folks at Mighty Bear. So what are some of the gaps you're seeing? What are some of the needs that, you know, when you're developing for more mature uh, platforms or, or technology stacks, you know, when you're making an Apple Arcade game, like what are some of the things you need that are just missing for this world of uh, blockchain Web3 game development? I mean, I just want to make a statement before I answer that. 
which I heard someone else say, which I think is very true though. Like if everyone focused on picks and shovels, we'd never strike gold. And so yeah. the industry also needs people like us to, to do the digging blindly. But um, I think in terms of what we need, like, you know, I'll go back to something I mentioned earlier, which is uh, targeting, right? And so like, if you want to target Web3 communities today, like there's no playbook for that. Like no one has cracked yeah. that. Um, yeah. It's very hard. I know a lot of people are doing like wallet, wallet analytics and target social media profiles, but it feels very Web2. I don't think there's a company out there that's really figured that out. And, you know, a lot of people, I'm not the first to say this, like Discord is not really a perfect solution for Web3 projects today. And there's a lot of security issues as a result of it and hacks mm -hmm. and like issues with, you know, bots and everything else. And I think the community management side of it, like not community, community relations side of it and, and how you engage with the community is not figured out yet either. And so those are two things that as someone who's building in this space are like a constant source of, of friction for us. And, Honestly, like, you know, maybe I'm leaking a little bit of alpha here. Like, there are problems we're working to solve as well. Like, we're building our own kind of solutions to, to look at this too. Um, but I think these are real problems that have to be solved. And, you know, the, one of the things that's really struck me as we start building this game and has reinforced how early we are is just how the paucity of, like, great tools for developers to grow and, and engage with their communities in this space today. Yeah. If you're wise... Uh, in your listening skills, that was some true, true alpha right there. Uh, because I can tell you, just to the Discord point, I have left communities, many communities, because a moderator was hacked and the hacker immediately starts spamming people with notifications and I'm out of that community and I'm never coming back. Yeah. Um, and that's just one of the many challenges I've had. Um. So that was, you know, really advice from a, from a person doing the work, talking about services they need. And, and if you think, uh, uh, if you want to know how valuable that type of alpha can be, uh, I believe that Slack, a multi-billion dollar public company, was born out of the ashes of a communication tool built for the internal development of a browser-based MMO. That went. It was a good game glitch as I played it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Am I wait? Am I think? Am I saying? Was it Slack or was it was it a it's photo? Slack. Slack yeah, it was Slack. Glitch, yeah, but the, yeah. The same, so uh, Stuart Butterfield also made um, what's the the photo app before that? But yeah, yeah. Okay, so I did have my anecdote right. So that was uh, you might have just pivoted my uh, incubating startup with with Go that for last it. conversation. Fix that problem, Simon. This was a delight. I'm so glad we got connected and I really hope that we get to uh, meet up in, in person sometime because uh, uh, I think I could talk to you for a couple hours uh, easily I'd enjoy it, man. just based about our shared history. Come come to Singapore and we'll, we'll show you around and have a few drinks and, and chat about games. Wonderful. All right. Thank you so much. Everybody follow that project. Uh, get ready for the mint. Grab your, uh, grab your bear. All right. Thanks so much, Simon. Thank you, man. Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, 
We love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time. Thank you.